Welcome to the Keeney Interviews. Through this series, you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together, we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Keeney is the Malaysian word for current, and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector. Welcome to the first interview in the Kinney Interview Series. My name is Karen Delfo. In today's interview, I speak with Chris O'Neill, an environmental engineer and the financial director of Hydronumerics, whose mission is to bring innovative, state-of-the-art, and solution-based services to the global water industry. Chris is based in Melbourne, and in this interview, we will discuss his work in Australia, India, and Brazil. We'll also speak about how he got started with working in India, his ideas for authentic international collaboration to address water management, how to build relationships with communities, and his advice for people who want to get involved professionally in water management in developing countries. Enjoy this interview and conversation with Chris. So Chris, um, it's really great to have finally found the uh, time to be able to speak with you. Um, and it'd be great if you would just tell me a little bit about yourself and all the things that you're up to. Oh, easy. So I'm an environmental engineer and I live in Melbourne. And I work for Hydronumerics, which is an Australian company specialising in numerical water resource modelling. And I'll get onto that. And we also focus on real-time management and decision support systems. Excellent. Um, or complex aquatic uh, Okay, so what is a decision support system? I mean, I, I think it would be helpful to sort of describe so, what that looks like. Like, Basically, a decision support system is, or an online decision support system, is any product that helps managers and operators remove some of the uncertainty. Um, so they can fall into two sections, one strategic and one operational. So one is... We can look at how reservoirs or any environmental asset like a wetland, a river or a lake, for example, can be operated in the next two weeks. And so if there's poor water quality or we've found some, um, some identification of some sort of parameter that might be sort of dissolved oxygen, for example, or some chemical pollutant, um, we can transform the way that assets manage before people interact with that water. Um, or it can be strategic, so we can look at sort of five-year plans with some of our partners. So for Port Phillip Bay, for example, in Melbourne, um, we work to look at the entire environmental management plan, which is basically a 10 to 20-year plan on how that asset will be managed over time. So we can get all the information into one software product. Um, we can display the information. We can look at historical information. We can look at modelled results so we can forecast. Um, and basically what it is, is just putting the information you need at your fingertips. That's all it is. That's the short answer. Um, it sounds like it's so, some sort of co complex flowchart or a choose your own adventure in a sense where, okay, here's yeah, all the input and then if you make this decision, this is what happens here. And if you make that decision, well, this is what you might end up with. And Exactly. So we're actually – so. What we're trying to do, well, historically, it's just been a dashboard project uh, product. So 
it's basically I've got um, reservoir X and would maybe, for example, um, an example you might know is Wivenhoe Dam in, in Brisbane. Do know that place. Yeah, so we configured the program to get all the water quality, so dissolved oxygen, temperature, all the nutrient information into one screen. So instead of people having to go through spreadsheets and fax machines and all that sort of stuff, you just log on, you click Wivenhoe Dam and all the information that you need is at your fingertips. If it's outside the the specs that you want, it'll have sort of a red flag. So, you know, oh, it looks bad today, looked better yesterday. Um, and what we can then do is put in modelling results into that. So exactly as you just said then, what about if 100 more litres comes into that dam? Or what about if climate change makes it two degrees warmer in 10 years' time? What's going to happen with that resource? And how you build that, why is that important? Because when water leaves that domain, it can go into, a, you know, an important river where fish are breeding or people are, you know, swimming or taking their bath in. And we have to understand what the quality of the water is leading, you know, leaving that asset or how we can model the quality of the water leaving that asset. So the DSS is basically, as you just articulated, I, I know I'm going to have to change how I manage this reservoir, but what's going to be the impact on either aquatic flora and fauna or human health or public amenity. So that's where we're sort of pushing our results to. And you've been doing... DSS to support environmental decision-making in Australia since 2010. So there's probably quite a range of projects that have been set up and running, proving the success of this approach. Yeah. So actually a background to my company, Hydronumerics, we were all staff of the Centre for Water Research at the University of Western Australia. Um, and those guys there had sort of developed those models and really done um, some of the baseline work for the decision support systems that we took over in 2010. So basically we privatised a research group um, from, from the University of Western Australia. Um, and we've been quite blessed since then. So we've, we now work, you know, day in, day out with Melbourne Water, with, um, with all the potable supply reservoirs feeding into, the, into Melbourne Melbourne's metro region, um, with Sydney Catchment Authority or now Office of Water, with South South Australia Water, SA Water, looking at the entire lower Murray-Darling Basin um, and lots of the retailers through Victoria, um, in Singapore, in Japan um, and now in India as well. Which is a great segue to uh, talking about working in India and how that got started. I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit about the experience of starting to bring this business model over to India and how that worked for you. To the business model. It's really embarrassing talking about how, how I got into India because I actually just fell in love with India. It's, it had nothing to do with engineering. <laughs> no, I mean, I totally understand. I've only been to India for five days and it changed yeah. me as a person. Yeah. And it opened me up to understanding humanity at a completely different level. I can completely yeah. understand how you can fall in love with that country. And I only saw the smallest, smallest part of India. But I won a innovation grant from the city of Melbourne to look at how we apply our modelling prowess 
to wastewater, not just clean water. Um, and I was at the awards night for that in in the city, and a guy came up to me and said, "Oh well, the city of Melbourne and the Victorian government is sending engineers and scientists to India. Why don't you go over and have a look about you know what you can do?" And so I said, "Well, why not?" And they said, "Oh, we'll give you two thousand dollars. I think it was you know as a travel grant." And I said, "No, oh, well, I might as well go." So I booked an economy flight. I remember it was. Um, for my visa, accommodation and flights was $1,900. And I thought, oh, that's perfect. I've got a free holiday. And uh, (laughs) and I was like, awesome. (laughs) Um, And I lived on a shoestring while I was there. But I just arrived in India and I I found and I experienced a country that just doesn't sweat small things. And I think everyone looks at India like it's a basket case and stuff doesn't happen. But when you look behind this chaotic veneer, everyone wakes up in the morning, planes take off, the banks open, kids go to school, mum and dad have lunch and kids come home, the planes land and everyone goes to bed. And it is no different to any other country you know, on the planet. But there's just this veneer of chaos just because of the sheer mass of people. But what ha- that precipitates in this deep thinking and also this abandonment of petty victories. You know, I've been in Delhi where a bus hits a guy on a motorcycle and in any other country in the world, particularly Australia or the States, There'd be, a, you know, all that warfare on whose fault it was and blah, 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 blah. And in India, they're just like, oh, shit, you know, that's that's pretty bad. But, you know, there's worse things to worry about. And so I just love, I don't know, it's, it's something about it. Like it's, it's a different sense of perspective, definitely. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you see, and I'm not the first person to observe this and not even the first person to report about it, but you see exiting the slums in the morning young girls immaculately dressed with their hair set in beautiful plaits and not a hair out of place and they've literally walked out of a tin shed with probably 14 of their family members and you think how the dickens did this happen you know what I mean? like they've walked out of god knows where and they they take a foot out of the slum and they're like it's like you know it's like my kids going to school well probably my kids are worse off um, you know, they look scruffier than these kids. Anything, oh, just they just make it work. I, I think the other thing was, and I sort of mentioned it when I was talking about some of the work we do in the villages in Rajasthan, that really when we train as engineers and especially environmental engineers, there is this element of serving our community. Um, and I just find, and I know you wrote a question, how do you balance income in India with, um, you know, being a small firm and doing work in India? But by contrast, what I charge in an hour is almost, you know, double what, you know, the majority of slum dwellers earn in a month in India. And we're very rich whether or not we think it or not. So I'm so passionate about using our smarts in India to help those people, whether or not we ever get paid for it or not. Um, 
just because, you know, we ha fundamentally we have an obligation to try to help the environment where we can. And if it's so expensive or so it's such a barrier for people to do, for other people to do that, why can't hydrogenumerics do it? Um, yeah, it's like it's, you have a different sense of perspective when you're trying to manage water quality for maybe, let's say, occasional recreational use as opposed to, hey, for a fraction of the cost, we can manage water quality and save lives. <laughs> exactly. And a project we're working on at the moment in Gujarat sort of highlights for me what an environmental engineer does. What We're working with a, a group of 940 um, industrial organisations that are pumping um, all this waste into the Gulf of Kutch in the, in the west of India and they want to triple the discharge. And why they want to triple the discharge is because it's fundamentally economic question. They want to increase the, the revenue through, through the, the wastewater treatment plant. But if we can try to understand what the environmental impact is currently, and if we can prove that there's, there's no significant difference between the current load on the environment and the future load, it's actually on balance. I mean, it's kind of a good outcome. You know, people have to eat, people have to have a job and we have to balance the environment. So although at the surface it looks like we're supporting, you know, this gross expansion of pollution, what we're trying to say is let's understand what the current impacts are and what the future impacts are. And it takes it back to that DSS and those two things we actually do anyway. But, you know, if we can balance all those things, that's what an environmental engineer's you know, that's what our job should be for. How do we preserve the environmental value but also make sure people have a livelihood? Do you find that most environmental engineers are thinking in this way or is it just more...? Uh, I believe that they all are. They all, I would hope they do. That's number one. I think... Possibly where some deviate is you get into jobs that you just can't have that latitude. Mm. Um, you know, I'm very blessed. I own the company and do what I like. Um, you know, I have business partners to report to. But, you know, some engineers might be in the halfway, in the, you know, in a corporate ladder somewhere. They're not going to, you know. No, they have their mandate. They need to solve this particular problem using their skills. It's... It's a little bit more cut and dry. I mean, this is a holistic approach, looking at yeah. protecting environmental benefits for the long term and not creating more problems through the process. It's And we've had to step out of some projects. I work, ex I don't know if you've heard, we work extensively with a village group in, in Rajasthan. And Tonk district in Rajasthan is the third most backward district in India. So you can imagine how poor India is on balance and then think about the third poorest of yeah. all that country, Jesus Christ. Yeah. And they wanted us to overhaul one of their collection dams to impound monsoon water. So, you know, if they had more, more water impounded, um, you know, their cattle would have more, you know, a better chance at having a drink in those dry months. And But the problem is, that, so they sort of these villages aggregate, you know, probably and in any civilization along 
the river valleys and, and the creeks. And in India, when the monsoon comes in, it dumps all this water and then it's dry for six months. So they've built these reservoirs over how many generations? But attending to that is a, a huge silt, a silt problem. So not only does the rain come, but all this soil and stuff gets washed down. So we were sort of asked, and I do this um, in Tonk District, it's all for free. We don't charge anything. We pay for our own flights and accommodation and all that sort of stuff. Um, we were asked to sort of double the size of their impoundment um, and make sure they could hold up all this you know, all the, all this water. So their, their cows and, and their crops would have more water during the dry season. But we had to step away from it because what we realised is that the downstream villages also rely on the spillover from that water. So although we could, um, you know, we'd probably make a really good outcome for that village, everyone downstream would be stuffed because they've, they've sort of set up their lives based on what they expect is going to be, you know, coming down the river or the creek basically from from this upstream village. So it's it can be really hard sometimes to tell people you're not going to help them. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes me think about well relining in uh, with the Colorado River Water Transfer Project to Southern California. They're saying, yes. we need to do all this well relining because we can, you know, reduce loss and improve efficiency. So they go and they put in this project and all the farmers in Mexico who depend on the groundwater that leaks yeah. through the wells are, yeah, they're stuffed. They're like, whoops. Yeah. And that is my favorite quote. And that project you just talked about, the UN Special Rapporteur on Water said, you're just robbing Peter to pay Paul when you take, um, when you know, do do the realignment of the wells. There's no such thing as making more water. It just goes round and round and round. Yeah. Um, and he specifically outlined that project you talked about um, and saying all you've done is shifted the problem, you know, 180 degrees. That's all you've done. You haven't solved anything. Yep. Um, but in terms of how do we get started. Um, and I don't know if this has any relationship to, is it kinney? Is it, that's the right word? Yep, that's kinney? the right word. Yeah. We started by doing a lot of pilot projects, I guess you'd call them. So we'd sort of identify a project partner and where we thought we could add value and say, you know, we'll do it for nothing or we'll do it for free, you know, $1.50 and that sort of stuff. What I found though was that there's got to be buy-in from the project partner. Um, and I think it it's almost like what you you sort of articulated about when you're doing that work in Brazil. You've got all these ideas, but until the people can understand your why, it can sort of fall on its ass. Um, so what I think, you know, in terms of advice for other people is you might have great ideas. And someone even asked me today, is hygienomerics actually better than any Indians doing the work we do? And the answer is probably no. But you've got to be clear about articulating your why and you've got to build trust with your partners. Um, and you've actually got to be you've got to be solving a problem that they have. You can't invent problems and take it to them. Um, and I've seen time and time again, you know, people go to India with widgets or programs or consulting services that they think India is in demand for and other jurisdictions that we've worked in. And I guess when you're looking at the Pacific, it probably has some parallels, but 
you, you have to know your why, but at the end of the day, someone's only going to buy something from you, whether it's, you know, consulting services or a widget, if they trust it's going to solve a problem they they perceive they have. Um, and I think I sort of, I saw some really good parallels with the, you know, that stuff you talked about in your work in Brazil. Oh, yes. Okay. So, yes. <laughs> um, you're talking about when I worked um, up in the Atlantic rainforest uh, supporting an NGO. Is this the... Yeah, the this... office or something, is it? Yeah. So it was an NGO that is very keen to support sustainable development, but they had some issues around their own sustainability, I think, that was needed to be addressed before they could actually work in, in terms of community sustainability. So there was this kind of conflict between organizational sustainability and uh, really achieving the, um, that's like a very nice way of putting it basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, um, it's, it's also a cultural issue in Brazil it was very much a cultural issue where the relationships that you form at the community level, or even within the links that you're trying to build with government, are about having a social connection and without that yeah. social connection people really aren't interested in doing any work because work is completely secondary to the social connection yeah. that you're building and um and that that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of getting to know one another and showing up and drinking red wine and you know, all sorts of things that wasn't that wasn't really happening in the in the community space i think the, in the community space the NGO that I was working with was setting up the social connections with the community, but it was like really engaging the necessary project partners and the necessary funders to bring in the good science. Cause we were trying to set up payment for environmental services within the same basin that actually has Rio de Janeiro. So it's just huge. Ah, and yeah. looking at how do you set up a pilot project in the sub catchment that would work where you have willingness to pay, willingness to receive for preserving the land and providing both economic benefits, of course, but also environmental benefits Environment. and, yeah. then, and then sort of figuring out how that worked and then scaling it up eventually. But, um, yeah, oh, so slow, so slow. <laughs> but I mean, the red wine aspect is, and I've, I get, I must get about 15 calls a week about people saying, can I help them go to India? Particularly, I mean, I work right across Asia, but particularly with, uh, the um, expertise building a business in that jurisdiction. The other stuff's been all sort of ad hoc. Yeah. Um, is the red wine and is the most important part? And I'll give you an example. In this in this Tonk district, I went down there and I was invited by the elected mayor. So it's called a Sarpanch in India, and. Um, I went down there and I was like, oh, what are we doing? And I went two or three times and, you know, it's a pain in the ass. You've got to fly from Delhi to Rajasthan and then you've got to drive and it's hot and blah, blah. And I, the, where I saw an inflection point in the relationship, I put on local dress. So I wore what they wore and I sat down at a farmer's. So we'd sort of pulled off the road and there was a few little huts, with, you know, one of them didn't even have walls. And I sat on the ground um, having tea with the farmer. And I couldn't speak any of Rajasthani. I can speak Hindi, but no Rajasthani. And there was just this transformation of their acceptance of me into that environment. Mm. And 
I think what happens, particularly in developing countries, they see this sort of, you know, white man on a shining horse roll into town going to save the world. And it can be very... It can be very scary for the locals, and I don't know if you've experienced this. I don't know the full extent of the Kin Project, but particularly in our Pacific neighbours, you know, they're very experienced having Aussies and Kiwis and all that go over there. But there has to be that social capital built up, you know, that have a red wine with them and find out about their kids, and because otherwise, how can they trust you? You know, you just you need to build that trust is fundamental in in those relationships. Yeah, and I think that exists in almost any country that you work in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even, I mean, that's why you have an interview process. You don't just hire someone based on their credentials. It's yeah. like you want to make sure you can actually work with these people. And it is important. But I think the the issue that you're talking about is like putting on local dress and and sitting on the floor and having a cup of tea or having a glass of wine and just saying like, what's really going on, you know? What's yeah. your day? What's your day really been like? Is it's it's good, but also understanding I think how motivated they are to actually make the changes that you yeah. think you think or they've identified or whatever it is that need to be made. Because a lot of times, you see something very obvious that could be shifted or made better with with different environmental outcomes, different economic social outcomes, everything like that. But they're like, why? It's just like, no, yeah. you know. And- well, that's a classic case in these villages too. So we, they irrigate pretty much exclusively from um, tube wells or um, you know, surface, surface water wells. But there's, so we went out there and, and what I did in one of the village clusters out there in Rajasthan was they really, in India they have a lot of supply side initiatives like coke will go out and say we'll pay for a pump we'll you know we'll you'll have a you'll have a merry-go-round and all so there's all this stuff they'll invest in infrastructure which is supply side solutions but there's very little comprehension of the demand side of the equation so when i say well how many people live in this village i I don't know and how many women are there we don't know how many kids are there don't know how big's your farms that support that village so all these demand side things no one knows so we went around and measured how much water they need and you know sat there with buckets well and sat there with stopwatches while women filled up their their implements um you know seven buckets of water per family per day and all that sort of stuff and what was really interesting is that there was often domestic conflict between husband and wives essentially because the farmers, the men would irrigate the crops around their house from the groundwater, but just turn the pump on and let the water piss out the far end of the, the crop and they'd you know, go and drink some booze or you know, fall asleep in the, under the sun and the water would just be you know, hammering off the paddock, not doing anything, and the well would run dry and then the farmers would, then the men would come back and be sort of angry at their wives saying, you know, there's no water for the house, the kids are thirsty and there was a complete disconnect between them irrigating from the well for the crop and the rest of the family needing water for the well for drinking. It was like it, it wasn't them being rude or obnoxious. There was just a complete um, psychological disconnect between that the water cycle, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, this is, a sto- this is really interesting because this is a point that keeps coming up 
where yes. I've heard I've heard another story yeah about um uh, there was a village and somebody passed away and the men went up to bury that person and do their final rites and everything. And they, in order to do that, they cut down the tree that was actually the big sponge for the the, the, the yeah. spring. And and the women were like, what did you just do? Like, you just destroyed our water source. And they're like, but we had to do yeah. our final rites and this tree was there. And it's just like that disconnect, you know, just. Yeah. And that's this fundamental training that we, as you, sorry, the whole point of that story is you said, well, we see obvious things. So they, so they don't, you know, they see the rice growing or the wheat growing and that's okay. But there's no conceptualization of how they apportion the groundwater um, the next day. So, but as you said, you know, how can we get them to change when they don't even understand? Uh, and this isn't a sort of a judgment call. There's just fundamental, you know, disconnect between our our learning at uni and, and their, you know. But, but their... we have, I mean, I want to say that we have the same disconnect every time we flush the toilet. I mean, we're flushing potable yeah. water down the toilet. There's a complete disconnect there. I mean, this yeah, disconnect exactly. happens at so many levels in so many different societies. It's just maybe yeah. for us seeing as, as people who've been, yeah, been trained at university and you know, have this experience, we see this environmental disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, I reckon that would be a learning and you, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know how far along that journey in Kinney you are, but is you, you're going to have an idea and I, well, I've had 45,000 going into different countries, but until you sit with those people and find out what they're actually interested in, it's, it's kind of, you know, a wholesale waste of money saying we'll do this, 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 because you're right, you've got to convince people of their own beliefs and actually, you've got to, I know, I did, did do a bit of that work through Peter Cullen Trust over the last few months, but you've got to sort of go in with an agenda-free idea. You know, I make ice creams. Do you want to buy ice creams? Um, don't worry about why you think it's so shit hot. Um, I think the learning is they'll, you've got to sort of assume they're smart enough to see what you're selling and then it's about building the relationship and how it fits in with their, their future needs. Um, Cause otherwise you sort of get tangled up in trying to chase what you, th- oh, I don't know. It's hard to articulate, but you sort of get, you sort of get tangled up in chasing what you think people want to buy. And I know that that's not a consulting talk, but it doesn't matter if you're doing research or advocacy or DFAT work or all that sort of stuff. You really got to know what you're doing, and then build the relationship to find out if it fits in. And if it doesn't, it's a bit of a kick in the guts. But you might just have to moonwalk out of there and try something else, you know? Yeah, being okay Don't with be- that, and just yeah. Okay, well, maybe this isn't the right time for you guys. That's okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that's I don't know how much how. But precise. what about? I'm just thinking also about you know those sort of shared values and I mean there's a sh- there's a shared value to survive there's a shared value to be healthy <laughs> um, to have yeah, shelter right. to be able to feed yourself everything like that I mean that's that's fundamental stuff but it's like realizing the the, the greater value of you know the environment uh, and us as a part of the environment and how that impacts future generations and neighbors and everything like that it's just starting with that conversation and saying like, how important is this really to you? And 
is what's yeah. your vision for your community in the long term and and getting people to start to think in that that way is, is sometimes yeah. really a challenge when yeah and there's a bit of um you know there can be a bit of head in the sandism um you know it's hard you can imagine you know reflect on your um I'm saying your life, but reflect on my life, your life, all the opportunities you've had and all the opportunities that I've had. And you've been all around the world, you've studied, you've, you know, partied here and there. But, and then we swan into town saying, you've got to do this. And these, you sort of go to some villages or some remote locations that, and I, I actually remember being, sorry, and they just, you just, they just don't have the worldliness that, we're sort of accustomed to you saying, well, you know, there's climate change. The research says this and blah, blah. And that's, you might as well be speaking about flying to Saturn, you know, because it's just the, the, the conceptualization of the experiences we bring to the table, um, are inappropriate. You know, we can't put five years of, you know, engineering education into their ears in 10 minutes. It's, it's a long game and it's, uh, you know, I expect in the Pacific region, Kenya might have some sort of allegory as well or some relationship where we we can't get frustrated with ourselves because they're not changing fast enough, but also think about what their sphere of influence is compared to ours. You know, you're going to Mexico next week on a retreat, you've been to Spain, you've done X, Y, Z, and I just think we sometimes get disenchanted by how by that we're not having successes because we're placing too much expectations on the community that we're working in. <laughs> no, no, I think it, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm like having a moment of reflection because it's, yeah. it's incredibly astute. It's true. And but yeah, it's a difficulty because yeah. people say, okay, I'm going to have a six month project where I'm going to be going over to try and address this issue and, and like six months is nothing. You don't even yeah. get to start the real conversations in six months for the most part. You get a grasp of maybe what's possibly going on, but you can't, it's yeah. like the, the, our expectation of being able to engage and transform in a short period of time does not make yeah. sense. And you're, you're, you're impacting these people's lives. It's just, or your, or your idea is to, and it's like, you don't even understand who they are. Are I mean, understanding someone takes a lifetime. It's just yeah. So it's this. I think managing expectations is a really important thing. Yeah, um, and also managing the um, one thing I've been thinking about lately. Lately, pardon me, is um, managing the morning process. And why I say that, I know it sounds really funny. I reckon I'm onto something. Is is for me, but I think everyone is think about what happens when you leave. And in my mind, I talk about, I think about it as the morning process because I can imagine that I swan into a village saying, right, you are set, O'Neill's here, we're going to fix this shit up, you just found yourself in the middle of the revolution. <laughs> and, you know, I think, well, you know, can't believe they're not on my bandwagon. And I can expect that you'd sort of show up on day one thinking, oh, this is all very good, but what happens in six months' time when they leave? Who the dickens is going to help me figure X, Y, Z out? You know what I mean? Like, So yep. I think that managing the post, I don't know how to articulate it precisely, but what happens after, you know, after the ball, basically? Yeah. Um, it's re I think it can, it's 
I think it's a really overlooked issue in all of our foreign work. Um, you know, I was looking at something today. They're going to Rio de Janeiro to look at water scarcity, and there's one week in country. You know, mm. there's three Australian teams over from AWP, and I thought I rang Grantly. I said, "What? What is? <laughs> I don't know. You're very clever. We're all very smart, but." You know, these people have to get off their ass, get up, get you know, leave their job for a week and talk to us, and you know, take that for dinner, and all we're all going to be in love with each other. And then what happens after that? You know, how do you? And the barrier is, I, I, I just think there's a lack of commitment from some of our partners because they're fundamentally worried that if they invest or do something, and then we leave, they're sort of left holding the baby and. What are they going to do with it, you know? Well, and it's also particularly difficult when there may have been previous interactions where that has, exactly that has happened. Yes. And people have felt left down and they said, oh, we yeah. made these big plans. And so, okay, now we just, we're going to talk the talk, but we're not really making that investment because we know you're yes. going to leave and we know we're going to be left there. <laughs> kind of yeah. holding the balls the by bar- ourselves still. Time and time again. Eventually she just doesn't show up to the altar, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I reckon that's something to explore, like as, as a leader for you, I reckon it's something to explore. I would, I don't know what the answer is, um, whether or not saying we'll only do, you know, 70% of the budget from now on only goes into engagement and then 30% goes into, you know, after the honeymoon's over phase, because what happens is you engage third party and they're on to the next thing as soon as it finishes. You know, they've made 80% of their budget. No one really cares about the last 10, 20%. You can write that off and then they're on to the next exciting thing. And I, I just think time and time again, communities feel let down. Yeah. Well, there's a difference. I think this is a conversation we're having inside the AWP is there's a difference between setting a monitoring and evaluation project that has, I guess, expectation, sort of check, we've achieved that output, check. But it's like, no, what's actually the deeper knowledge and learning that's happened through this project? Yeah. Um, and, and and kind of thinking about it in a more holistic sense, is this something that can be transferred over to other projects? Does the team feel like there's they've set up some sort of ongoing training or communication that's happening around these projects like or activities, as they're called? Um, so just yeah. in a sense trying to support monitoring and evaluation to be that much more holistic and that much more sustainable in a sense so that there's not that loss when the activity finishes that all of a sudden, whoa, here we are again. (laughs) What's going on? And it's sustainability because I think long term, and I I think about this uh, particularly in India again, where my expertise is, but you see a World Bank project come up and the Danish want to do work there, the Dutch, you know, the Dutch put a team in, Japan puts a team in, China puts a team in, Germany puts a team in, the States puts a team in, and Australia puts a team in. And you think, we're not fundamentally that different. You know, what actually we're going to do? We want to fix up. There's shit in the water. We want to clean it, that, yeah. you know, for example. But there's all this conflict. And so then, you know, the Indian clients doing this juggling act of who's their, who's their best friend that week, you know, basically. And... Um, and then it all just goes to custard and we've seen this right throughout Asia where we've worked. And I think it's particularly because we don't manage that, as you said, you know, we all show up, oh, we've, you know, okay, we're all in love, 
we're going to do great things and then, you know, something else, we get called up and then it all goes to custody. I think, oh, just, yeah, I don't know that monitoring evaluation and there's to be some feedback or like a commitment to sustainability, I don't, you know, in that relationship aspect. I don't know if that's something that can be built in. Yeah, so with, with Kinney, what we're really trying to do is um, create the opportunity around knowledge for connections between practitioners who are working in the Asia-Pacific and also those who are working in Australia. And hopefully mm. those connections and that process of sharing knowledge in a kind of virtual space would be sustainable because the connections are real and organic and based around knowledge, not based around a project or an activity, not based around uh, chasing funding for something that is very clear. I mean, just that's, that's our idea. It's like, how do we create almost a community of practice? But yeah. again, we're operating on totally different wavelengths. So starting to find, okay, well, where do those wavelengths have the opportunity to interact and, mm. and sort of hit one another? And then how do we identify those points and build upon those points? That's sort of the thinking that we have behind this project. So one thing, I had an idea, and I actually registered the website, enviroexchange.org or some crap. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, th- I really love that idea because what I think is that the flow of information will only happen after there's a little bit of trust. So... You know, you're never going to tell some random on the street you're scared of the dark or something, but you'll tell your best friend, right? You know, um, and what I think that I reckon if there's funding to have our Asia Pacific partners come and sit with whatever area of interest there are, so whether they go to, you know, um, sit at uh, if they're in water resource planning, if they go and sit at MDBA for two weeks or if someone comes and we can get funding from AWP and then, um, you know, if they're looking at water chemistry, they can go and sit with SA Water in their lab for a week. And it's not so much about learning the technical stuff but actually forging, you know, you take those people out for dinner, it's the red wine moment again. That's... I think it's really hard. I don't know what the other what plans you have on the table, but I've got this feeling that if we can get those people into Australia, into short term, sitting side by side and twinning, I think, has been, been popularised by AWP as well, but actually getting those people to Australia. I mean, it's pretty cheap, you know, flights and accommodation for a week, two weeks. And I think that's really going to forge deep relationships. Um, so it, in, just in that in that stream, the International Water Centre does work with DFAT and brings over what they call um, the Australian Leadership Award students to do okay. short-term projects in Australia where they do work to kind of form those connections. But these are large groups from countries uh, that do come in and they have a curriculum and they, you know, so it's a little bit different, but there is this sort of exchange that Australia is very interested in, in fostering and the architecture's there. So, because my vision is more for sort of you know thirty to people with thirty to forty who sort of established. You know, at IWA I met the head of Sarawak Water. You know, I thought, oh gee, wonder if he'd be the sort of guy I reckon come and sit at Melbourne Water Operations for two weeks and brush up on his skills. You know. 
whether or not he needs it or not. But, you know, I mean, if we can get one a month, you know, year on year, it's really starting to build. It's like the horse of Troy, I always think, you know, <laughs> it starts to really build that relationship back to Australia um, more so than the other countries. Um, yeah, it's a great idea. I think um, that one-on-one approach would be great and maybe seeing how within the existing infrastructure there might be more of that opportunity, even for people who are coming over for, for example, these ALA programs, to be able to come a week yeah. early or stay a week later and actually kind of connect in with those specific groups. But Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, and there's, there's so many things going on in my brain right now. So one of the things I'm thinking about is how do we get quote unquote busy people to realize like stop being busy and let's really think about what's yeah make time like like what you've been talking about with the projects that you're involved in okay now you feel like you actually have time just because I think you're thinking about things a little bit differently and you're looking at your time a little bit differently and that that shift in your brain from oh I have all these things on my to-do list and they're going to keep me busy and I have all these outputs I need to achieve and blah 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 and and off I go Mm. versus hold on a second how do I strategically engage with my work and build strong relationships so that I can I don't know, just think about things differently and, and operate on that yeah. different level. It's, it's, that's a difficult process. And it's also a difficult process, I think, in Australia where a lot of these heads of water utilities have so much going on to be able to say, okay, yeah. I'm going to make the space in my profession to be able to really cultivate this relationship with somebody, a stranger who's going to come in, who's, you know, uh, it's, and, and I see the value in that and I want to make this happen. It's it's really difficult, even though they want to, I think, to just carve to out that. Because there's so much it almost, going on. It almost, I reckon you've hit on a really cool thing, but I'm going to hijack it as my idea. Um, right on. I don't, you can take whatever ideas no. are there, but like, as long as they happen. It's almost, it's almost like, there's a paper in this saying that networking could be a KPI on executives' performance review. And I know that's a dumb way of saying it, but, you know, what is a senior executive, you know, wherever, SA Water, you know, they've got a, the revenue has to be X, there's got to be fewer than 10, you know, E. coli results per thousand and they've got to have a satisfactory customer survey. That'd be, you know, broadly what I would say, you know, would be their KPIs. But then there's no such thing as networking as a KPI. And I know that sounds very basic as networking, but networking could be they get in the CEO of, you know, Tonga Water Authority for a week or, you know, any of these things. But I just wonder if if that was a KPI, I'm sure they would make space in their diary for it. Um, I don't know. I think one thing I learned last week at the Peter Cullen Trust, I'd actually encourage you to have a look at it. I reckon you'd be, you'd smash it out of the park, but unfortunately it's two weeks in Australia plus coursework. I don't know how that, what your timing's going to like. Anything um, is possible. That's the way I look at everything. So anything's possible. Everywhere's long enough. Yeah. Everywhere. <laughs> Everywhere is within walking distance if you have the time. Yes, Um, indeed. (laughs) One thing I learned about last week was, uh, not last week, but over the process, was as leaders advance, you move 
up this thing called an action logic tree and think about um, the shittest form of leader is called an opportunist. So um, they'll do things like I just said, great idea, but I'm going to hijack it. That's an opportunistic, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not going to hijack it, but um, you think of a leader like, um, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to say Trump because he's at the front of my mind. You know, I'm going to put the wall up to stop Mexicans. You know, yeah, that's that, that's just hitting a nerve with me. I'm just so you know. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. It's okay. I'm past the so, shock and sorrow. I can. I'm acceptance. Yeah. Let's. I can take it. We'll put the wall up. And as you move up, there's you move through. You have a lot of leaders in middle management that are experts. So you might be really good at water quality management. So you get promoted to the head of water quality. Um, and then you move to people that are probably called achievers. So, you know, you say, Chris, I want you to make, put all these eggs in the basket, then take them out the front, then put them all in boxes and bring them back in. And you've got to organize, you know, all those eggs. So he's a good leader, gets everything done. But as you mature beyond that, you start to think more about the cultural aspects and the welfare of the people you're leading and, other things that are going on in the world, you know, people's access to higher beings and all that sort of stuff. And what I think is if people had networking through this Kinney program, if Australian leaders had were encouraged to think about how they could put networking as a KPI, they'd be more in moving up from the achiever or certainly often the opportunist, but into these higher action logics, they'd start to sort of see the value in drawing those people from overseas into their organisations and then shooting them back to their own organisations with that extra knowledge. But I think conceptually the way their executives are set up is they just don't have that in their KPI, so what's the point in you know attending to it? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I'm so just also think I'm also thinking about the way that a lot of these top executives function in international conferences, where everyone's constantly interrupting everyone else, and it's just like there's a different echelon of functioning that's happening. I don't know how to describe that. Um, wh- where it's like, no, hold on a second. This isn't the way we we actually need to be working. Like these are all people you need to have conversations with. How do you think about? having conversations with them as opposed to just constantly interrupting one another. Okay. That's just my rant. But the other yeah. thing, I know, oh. what opportunists are, what apart from this interview, but think about our interaction to start with. I learned all this stuff from you because, and I think you did from me because we each shut our gob and listened and that's all, like, that's all you have to do. Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> And it works, you know. How did I know you did Brazil stuff? Because I spoke to you and I took the made the effort to go and have a look at your backstory. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting, you know. Um, so yeah, I think that posing thing that we have in Australian conferences is a bit, bit wanky. Um, I, th- I think oh, there's yeah. another there's another part of this conversation which is about the fact that the people who are the CEOs at the moment or heads of water utilities directors, 
they're not going to be there for the long haul. And there needs to yeah. also be built in this opportunity for people who are practitioners who are going to move into the leadership positions to find a way to connect with one another and also glean knowledge from these, these upper echelon people um, in a way that makes sense. Yeah, and exactly. I, I feel like there's this also this like the, the levels of management and, and leadership also, I think this was very well articulated. Did you stay at the end of the IWA conference, the closing session? No. Okay. So they had this thing set up where they had a table of top level executives speaking about their impressions of the conference. And then they had the sort of emerging professional table who were incidentally all women. And the conversation was completely different. The takeaways, the way that they approached this, the sort of the tones, the everything was completely different where the, the, the older generation was sitting there kind of talking about pipes in the ground and, you know, the nuts and bolts of all this, the, the, the younger people are talking about sustainable development goals. They're talking about tapping into yeah. the expertise. They're talking about the transformation, the vision, the values, like it just, it was a different conversation. And it made me realize like these two groups of people don't know how to interact with one another. Um, and there's, there should be more opportunities to figure out, how to build those bridges and how to bring the people who are going to eventually be running the utilities also into that space so that mm. they can learn and they can engage better with their superiors. And yeah, it's like, well, that's something maybe I wonder if the indigenous cultures, I mean, so it's got to be a win-win. Everything's got to be win-win. I wonder if the indigenous cultures that you're working with can bring you know, we're often told Western cultures are individualistic and and Indigenous cultures are collective. And that sort of, it's almost a parallel to, you know, the experienced table versus the younger generation. You know, we've got to start working together. We've got to start sustainability. But I wonder if the senior execs that are having so much trouble accepting, you know, the twinning or getting that culture, if you can say, well, what about if, you sit and listen to them about how they collectively decide on asset management or, or environmental problems in their cultures. Because wouldn't that be something that they can, you know, it's got, it can't just be them saying, I'll teach them this, I'll teach them this, I'll take time out of my day. There's got to be some sort of payback for both parties. I wonder if that's something that a lot of, you know, upper management, you know, many, many stiff suits of the next generation above us, would accept, I don't know, is it something we can push? I, I think it would be like any project. You'd want to find the people who would be able to jump on this bandwagon. You'd want to make them become sort of champions or examples of this sort of project so that their peers would see the benefits of that and want to engage with it. That, that sort of process would have to happen. So we'd have to strategically pick a small handful of people who would be the best yeah. ones to start with that. But I'm, when you say collective and indigenous, I think there, there's, it's so hard to categorize indigenous into one. one yeah, but so, I need to apply. But I also all, think about women, <laughs> women versus men. Like there's, yeah. that's also there, collective and women. Women te- tend to make decisions in a more, a lot of them, not all of them, obviously, in a collective framework. And there's not yeah, a lot exactly. of women at the yeah. heads of these companies either, so. And, you know, the research out now is that you need 41% or more on the board to get, of any of any group to get their voice heard. So unless you have 
you know, all these arguments saying you can't, you shouldn't have mandated 50% women. Well, it, the research now shows that unless you mandate and unless you have over 41%, they're going to be unrepresented in their voices. It's just so obvious, you know. Mm. So I don't know. So I, and, before you disappear, um, yep. one last question for you then. Mm. Is there anything that uh, you could par- just share in terms of people? I think I'm thinking about a lot of people who are at the beginning of their convers- uh, the beginning of their career, and they're looking to they want to make a difference. They want to use their education to make a difference. How would you recommend mm. people get started with that process? I think that's a really important question. There's there's right ways to do it and there's wrong ways to do it. And understanding the long-term mm-hmm. aspects of it is important. But what would you recommend to those who are passionate about improving, about affecting the sustainable development goals, for example? How do you actually do yeah. that? I believe you've, got to get good training at a couple of things. Well, I don't know what those couple of things. It might be pipes and pumps. It might be stakeholder engagement. It might be finance. It could be cooking. It might be changing wheels on cars. But I honestly believe, particularly for Australian kids, um, life is a very long game. And don't be, don't be despondent that you can't get out there and change the world on day one. I think if you can get into an organisation, whether it's a consulting house or the public service or a water board, and learn how to do something, you've got a much better chance of being invited overseas to change, you know, or, or any different jurisdiction to change something or to make an impact because. Really, as an engineer or a scientist, you know, basically the two, the main players in the environmental sector, you, they've got to buy your skills in something. They're, they're just inviting you over to fix something and therefore you've got to know how to fix something. And so my advice is bed down your core skills, a couple, you know, one or two, could be modelling, could be design, investment analysis, you know, the law and the environment, and then think about taking those skills overseas. And that could be, you might just have to take two or three years and really do that in Australia or somewhere else. But don't be don't be upset that you can't get out there on day one. And I know that sounds very profound, but when you, you need, when you want to enter the labour market, you've got to take something to the table. It's not a... It's not a right, it's a gift to have these opportunities to work overseas. And honestly, you might have the opportunity to do slum sanitation in Australia, but if you do two or three years of pipes and pumps and you sort of have all this, the wits about you to go over to Sri Lanka or go to Bangladesh or go to the back blocks of anywhere and apply your skills, it's, I think it's an unfair burden to expect that you go into an international setting and do you do your apprenticeship at the expense of, you know, some poor bugger in the middle of nowhere who's struggling to pay for anything? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I know that sounds very old farty, but I, I do sort of believe that. And it's got to be about your why. Why do you want a free holiday or you want to go sit on the beach in Barbados and piss fart around with an engineering job 
part time? What's the? Why do you want to go overseas for? <laughs> yeah, and being honest about that. Yeah, that's what I think what I'm trying yeah. to connect with in terms of purpose is like what's really the yeah. purpose here. Okay, Chris, thank you so much. I know you have to go. I really appreciate the time that you've been able to share. Oh, my pleasure at all. Perfect. Thank you so much. Have a great evening and a great weekend. I will. You too. And we'll be in touch. And thank you again. No worries. Thanks, Karen. Cheers. Bye. See you, mate. Ciao. Keeney is an initiative of the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Keeney connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific. Visit our website at keeney.org.au for more information and for videos, articles, news and more.